0: Um, we would like to get out of here at a reasonable time, so we want to cut it short. Um, I, I love that um, we did great as I faithfulness, and, and Rami asked us to meditate on God's faithfulness. I just wanted to share with you one way that I personally experience God's faithfulness to all of us, to Trinity Community Church, every week, is when I start working on the sermon early in the week. You know, if it was just me, I would nerd <laughs> out on this or that. Really focus on some technical aspect, or, or you know, get really esoteric about it. But the Lord always faithfully reins me in, and so by Saturday, when I'm sitting down and putting these last touches on it, I'm going, "What do you want to say?" And and God has been so faithful to always come and say, "This is the message that Trinity needs to hear. This is what we need to hear." So my theory is, any church you've been in, you probably said ours is the best pastor. He's the best preacher. And the truth of the matter is. That person is, he is the right person to preach to that church at that time because that's how God uses them. So it's just amazing how faithful Jesus is to his church on a regular basis, over and over and over again. So I, I just wanted to remind you this morning as we sit to hear the word preached, this is God's faithfulness to us again and again and again. His word is living and active. So thank the Lord for that. You know, isn't that great? <laughs> And, and lucky me, I get to be the mouthpiece standing up here. I mean, it's just amazing to me. This is a great job. I love what I do. Um, we want to invite our children to Children's Church, if you'd uh, like to head on, on back. And um, while they're going, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. And uh, Lord, the, the faithfulness expressed in the person of Jesus who will never let go. Lord, you said that... Um, We are the sheep of your hand and that no one can snatch us out of your hand. And so thank you for keeping us secure because, Lord, if it was up to us, we would wander. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But, Lord, you are faithful to us and you hold us steady. Thank you for that. And, Lord, Holy Spirit, we we ask you to come in song. And now I'm going to ask you to come because we need you to be with us in this time with your word. You inspired this to be written. You inspired it for not just... Luke's audience, but for the church throughout the ages. And so, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you come and be with us now and show us what it is that you have to say this morning. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's do the, the technical bit right up front. Can you throw the map up real quick? Hey. There we go. So um, you remember, uh, this is that red dot, and you can't... Oh, there it is. Okay, good. So you remember last week, he was uh, Paul was in Miletus, he called the Ephesian elders to come down to him at Miletus, and he shared his, his parting message with them. And then he got on a ship, and, and what we just heard is he sails uh, past Kos, past Rhodes uh, to Patera, and then he passes Cyprus on the left-hand side. They see it off the port bow, and then they land over here in uh, Phoenicia. So that, that was basically where we're going, and now you don't ever have to see that map again. <laughs> Here's the thing, is it starts with, again, Paul's travel journal, right? We sailed past costs, we sailed past roads, and we, we land at Patera, and then we sail with Cyprus on the left-hand side, and all this. There's tons of the little details in it, and I'll tell you, there's some really interesting stories about costs and roads, but I'm going to treat those things just like Paul uh, Luke did in passing. Just, there you go, that's what they paid, sailed past. Uh, we don't need to get into the history lesson about them, but... It does raise the question, why did Luke write them, and why did the Holy Spirit inspire them to be there for us? And before I said, remember, Luke includes these kind of details for his original audience, so they can can kind of visualize where the travel was. And for us, so we can go, wait, these are real places, you can go back and visit them. This really actually happened. Um, Well, when I was reading John Calvin's commentary on this, he kind of had another approach, and he said... Um, The reason Luke includes all these details, one of the reasons, or possible reason, is because he wants us to see the steel resolve that Paul has to get to Jerusalem. He's taking this journey. Remember, Paul didn't seem to like to sail very much. Whenever he had the opportunity, to go over land. But he's on a time clock, and the time is ticking, winding down. He wants to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost, and so he's going to hop on a boat and sail because that's what he does. And so it's kind of an a indication of this is the steel resolve of our apostle. He is going to do what he said he was going to do, and he's heading to Jerusalem. And if he has to get on a boat to do it, he's going to get on a boat and do it. So that's kind of, I think, the, another way to understand why this is in there. So anyway, they set sail, and when they swing past Cyprus, I, I love that little detail. Um, we passed it on the left-hand side. It, it, there's a bunch of little details in this story that, again, just don't really make a whole bunch of sense if this is fiction. Because something happens, he mentions something, and then it doesn't do anything. When you're writing fiction stories, if they mention something, it's supposed to do something in the story. It's supposed to, you know, come back. It's, all right, I figured out how BBC mysteries work. Watch the beginning, and the person who comes in and it talks, he gets lines, but he's a minor character. He gets lines, and then you don't see him for the whole second act. He did it. So they don't just put that person in and have him say lines and then dismiss him. He's there for a purpose. This is actually happening. This is something that Luke picked up out of his journal and said, this is what we did. This journey really happened. This is for real. So it's another one of those indications that what we're dealing with here is true stories, is is something that actually was going on. So that's the journey. And they wind up at Tyre, right? They land at Tyre. Um, so they're pretty close to Jerusalem now, right? We're we're narrowing in on the home stretch here. So when they get to Tyre, it says that while the ship is unloading, they sought out the disciples. They 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 hunted down disciples. We have not heard of anybody evangelizing Tyre. The only time that we heard Tyre mentioned was back when uh, in chapter twelve when Herod is having a tiff with Tyre because he used to provide food and they come and they they try to flatter him and they say, oh, it's the voice of a God, not a man. And he just kind of basks in it and so God zaps him. God kills him for it. That was the only time we heard Tyre mentioned. How come there are disciples here? Well, our camera, if this is like a a story, our camera has been focused on Paul and his journeys. What happened to Barnabas? Do you remember that, that part of the story when Barnabas and Paul split? Barnabas and Mark, went to Cyprus, and then we don't know where they went. Do you remember earlier when when Philip, who we'll meet again in this story, he went into this area and he was evangelizing? What we need to remember here is it's not just Paul. The the story is focused on Paul because Paul is at this cutting edge, but the disciples are doing what disciples do, and they're continuing to share the gospel. So there are disciples in Tyre, and Paul has to seek them out. He doesn't know them personally, so he seeks them out. And he finds some, and so they spend time together. He's going to spend a week with them. Um, Now we get to the tricky part. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now, as we've been going through this, I've been kind of hinting at this struggle. Is Paul disobeying by going to Jerusalem, or is he obeying? And actually, in the commentaries, most people say he was obeying, but there's some people who say, no, he was being disobedient. And I would kept putting that off. Well, I'm stuck. I can't put it off anymore. It comes to a head here. And actually, I'm glad I put it off to this point because really I think it's the the heart of this whole section is how do you make decisions? How do do Christians decide what to do? So let's, let's ask this question first. What does it mean that through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on? Well, it depends on how you translate that. The New Living Translation translates the verse this way. These believers prophesied through the Spirit that Paul should not go on to Jerusalem. They made up the New Living Translation, made up their mind Paul was in sin because he was disobeying the command of God. He disobeyed the Holy Spirit. The problem is, the word prophesied is not in this text. There's one little tiny word. Prepositions are notoriously dangerous when you get to translations because they can do all kinds of stuff. The word here is dia, which means through traveling through. So the ESV and the other major translations pretty accurately say through the Holy Spirit, or through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on. That's not the question. The question is, what does it mean through the Spirit? Now the New Living Translation has decided through the Spirit means that the Spirit spoke through the disciples, they prophesied, they said the Holy Spirit says this, don't go to Jerusalem, and Paul goes, yeah, I'm going anyway. That just doesn't seem to fit with who Paul is, who Paul has been so far, that he would hear a direct prophetic word and say, I'm going to do it anyway. That just doesn't seem to fit for me. So then what does through mean? Well, if you look in the New American Standard Bible, there's a footnote, and the footnote says, uh, through what the Spirit was saying, the people decided. So here's what I think is going on, is... The people have heard that Paul will be arrested, he will be put in chains in Jerusalem. And isn't that exactly what we heard earlier? He said, in every city I go to, the the Spirit says again and again, I will be arrested, chains and and imprisonment, wait me. Every place he winds up, somebody stands up and goes, Paul, when you get to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested. Either through supernatural or natural means, they know this. So if we kind of go back and review this whole question, in 1921, Paul is resolved in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Remember I said resolved in that context is used as a middle voice, and the middle voice is kind of reflective. It comes back on me. So it wasn't like the Holy Spirit convicted Paul and he was going to go do it. It sounded to me like Paul was resolved in his spirit. He was set firm. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'll be there by Pentecost. So that was 1921. In 2022, Paul is bound or constrained by the Spirit and the problem with that one is it could be middle voice, it could be uh, passive. They're both written exactly the same way. So it could be that Paul was convicted and bound by the Holy Spirit, you're going to go to Jerusalem. Or it could be that he, again, was, was firm in his resolution. Can't really make up my mind on that one, so I punted. I'm punting again. <laughs> we'll leave that one open. And then um, now in 2023, the Holy Spirit clearly says that chains and imprisonment await Paul. That's the, the. It's not the spirit. It is the Holy Spirit tells him this, so that's a little bit more clear. What the Spirit has said without without any kind of confusion is he's going to be arrested. The idea that he not go is still kind of up in the air, and so in verse twenty one or chapter twenty one, our chapter now verse eleven, we'll hear from Agabus, a prophet, and what will he say? Will he say, "Don't go to Jerusalem"? Thus says the Holy Spirit, "Don't go to Jerusalem." Again, what he'll say is, what awaits you are chains. So my theory is, my my understanding of this is when Paul says that Paul was told not to go, what happened was the disciples heard, chains and arrest await you. That was true. That was what the Holy Spirit has consistently been saying in this this, uh, entire section, this travel. And so the disciples then, through the Spirit, through the Spirit's prompting, because the Spirit told them that chains await they express their desire, which is, please don't go. Please don't go. We don't want you to get arrested. We don't want this to end. So I I think that's what's happening there. Um, That's why, like I said, the New American Standard, their their footnote says, because of impressions made by the Spirit, they said don't go. And I think maybe that's a better way to do it, because the word dia can be because instead of through. It's probably not in this section, otherwise we would have translated that way. And, you know, I'm a three-year Greek student. I'm not going to argue with these people who wrote the translations. They're, you know, PhDs in this stuff. Um, But we still are left with the question, what does it mean through? So I think that's what it means is the Spirit's impression on them led them to beg Paul not to go. And, And actually, in the second part of this, we'll see the same thing. Is The disciples will hear from Agabus, this is what's happening, and they will say, please don't go. So I think that's what's going on. Um, I'm, I'm glad I punted. So that's, uh, that's what he gets there. So he arrives in, in Tyre, and what he, he receives in Tyre is pleading. The saints are pleading with him not to go. Um, so the next section is where he moves on from Tyre, he goes down to uh, Ptolemaeus, and then spends one day, and then he heads off to Caesarea. So in Caesarea, what he gets is prophecy. right? So um, when it says he finished his voyage from Tyre, different translations say that different ways. Um, it probably means he finished his voyage. These are short hops on a, on a boat. These are like uh, 20 to 40 miles, easily done in a day. So these boat trips are really short, and Paul's still on the boat. For somebody who, I get the impression, doesn't care for sailing, he is, he is determined to get Jerusalem, so it's easier to be on the boat and sail rather than, than uh, go over land, and so that's what he's doing. So he goes through Ptolemaeus, and really where he winds up is in Caesarea. So he comes to Caesarea, and he entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. Isn't that a neat name? That, that's, that's a title for him, is he is an evangelist. When we were in Burma, I met uh, a woman who was the evangelist in the church. That was her role was to be the evangelist. Um, What that meant was she did children's Sunday school um, and she tried to reach out to other people. But, I mean, they have a title. They have an evangelist. So we have an opening here at Trinity Community Church (laughs) for the role of evangelist. I'm not sure what that means. Um, There's a number of things that, that pin down who this Philip is because remember we had Philip the Apostle. Is that who we're talking about? No, this is Philip the Evangelist. One of the seven lives in Caesarea, has four unmarried daughters, they prophesy. So I think what Luke is doing here is he's really pinning down for us who this person is. Um, he is the evangelist. And we met, when we saw uh, Philip, remember um, back in chapter six, he's traveling around and he's, he's meeting people. He met the Ethiopian eunuch and he, he witnessed to him and then he traveled around some more. And where that section ends in verse 40 is he winds up Uh, And he goes through all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So where Luke left him was in Caesarea, and apparently he settled there. So the issue of the seven, what were the seven doing? Do you remember that? They were waiting tables because the Hellenistic Jews were getting fed before, or the, uh, the Hebrew Jews were getting fed before the Hellenistic Jews, and so they appointed these seven, and so that's what he was doing. Apparently that issue is resolved, or they found somebody else to do it or something, because he's moved on. So he's there, he lives in Caesarea, and he has four unmarried daughters. This is another one of those little tidbits that get dropped in the text, and it doesn't really serve a purpose beyond saying this is somebody for real, this is somebody you know, because they're four daughters, they're unmarried, and they prophesy. Who gets to prophesy in this house? Agabus. He comes down from Judea, probably Jerusalem, maybe not. And he comes into the house with four prophetesses, and he's the one who prophesies. So why, marry, why mention the prophetesses? It's, it's one more little detail about. Look, this is the Philip you know. You remember this guy? He was one of the seven. Yeah, him with the four. Yeah, the guy with the four daughters. That's him. It just adds more of that earthiness, that groundedness to the text. So why didn't the daughters get to prophesy? Um, first of all, because we don't get to make that decision. <laughs> We, we, there's nothing we can do to stir up a prophecy and make it happen. God will give the prophecy to who he will give the prophecy to. And for some reason, God decided that Agabus was the man. He would be the person who would speak. But it doesn't diminish or dismiss women. This, one of the questions that came up was, was does this you know, mean you know, they're here and they're ready to prophesy and, well, you know, the guy has to come in and do it? It just is not the picture that the New Testament preaches. It's not dismissive of women, or they wouldn't have mentioned them. they just exclude them from the story. Why bring them up? Just leave them out. Also, don't forget, Luke mentioned a prophetess early, early on. In in, uh, chapter 2 of the Gospel, there's Anna the prophetess at the uh, temple, waiting for the coming Messiah. And and so she's held up as an example. And then in 1 Corinthians 11.5, Paul himself explains, if a woman prophesies or prays in church, then she should do this. So he's not saying women shouldn't prophesy, you know, if there's a man around, let the man do it. It's nothing as as grotesque as that. It's This is the Lord working. And so these women are there. They're important. They're significant. They get named, four daughters, but the the Lord has something else going on. So Agabus comes down from Judea. Usually that term coming down is usually come down from Jerusalem no matter which direction they're going. And it always messes me up because I think of come down as from Jerusalem they're heading south because I'm used to our way of doing maps. But for them, they could come down and go north because Jerusalem is the center. It's the hub of the thing. So um, there's, there's discussion about maybe Agabus came from Jerusalem. It doesn't matter. He came from Judea. Uh, we met Agabus before in chapter 11. You remember, he prophesied that there would be a famine in the land. And Luke adds this parenthetical statement, yeah, that happened during the time of Claudius. So what Luke has painted for us, this picture of Agabus, is this is a credible prophet. When he says something, it's going to happen. He's reliable because he prophesied a famine, and that famine took place. So that's, that's Agabus. Now, what Agabus does is not stand up and preach. Um, he grabs Luke's belt, and and I pictured this leather belt. It's not. It's probably a cloth belt that was wrapped around the waist. It may have had money in it, like a money belt. So that offering that he took up for the saints in Jerusalem, maybe that's in there. We don't know. Maybe he was carrying it separate because it was such a big thing. But he grabs his belt, and he ties his own hands and feet, And he prophesies, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. That's what's going to happen. And this is really clear because he says, this is what the Holy Spirit says is going to happen. Now, we're going to see this happen in a a little bit. I'm not going to be here next week. Daniel Holmquist is going to preach. When I get back, it'll probably be about two weeks after that before we get to the story. And you can't press too much on this. This is what happened. Um, the Jews did not bind Paul. They grabbed him and they were going to stone him. The Gentiles intervened and they bound him. And so it's not like it's wrong. It's just you you can't press too much on the details. The Jews at Jerusalem did oppose him. That's what he's getting at with bind him is they're going to arrest him. They did grab him and they did try to execute judgment. And they did hand them over to the Gentiles, although unwillingly. Because they came down and they were like, man, if we have a riot, I'm, I'm in trouble. So go arrest that guy and we'll figure this stuff out. Um, so it happened. It just didn't happen, you know, exactly knit for knit, exactly the way it sounds. We have to sometimes wait till prophecy is fulfilled to understand what all that means. So that's what's happening there. It says next that when he heard this, uh, when we heard this, we're back in we section now, Paul is tra- or Luke is traveling with Paul again. When we heard this, We and the people urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Who urged him not to go up to Jerusalem? Did the Holy Spirit tell him, don't go to Jerusalem? The people heard and they urged. I think that's what was going on in the previous section. I think that's what happened in Tyre. The people heard and they urged. They heard the Holy Spirit and they urged him not to go. So they're begging him, please don't do this. And Paul's response is, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? The, they were overwhelmed with anguish when they were begging him not to go. They loved him. They didn't want to see this happen. And the feeling is mutual. He has that same feeling back to them. He doesn't say, well, you know, let's, let's discuss this analytically. He says, why are you breaking my heart? You're making it so hard for me to do this. He loved these people. He was connected with them. He felt their anguish. He he cried with them. And he says that they're breaking his heart and begging him not to go. So that kind of makes me think that Paul has resolved himself, and there's a good reason. He has some, some solid reason for doing it, so that even his friends can't stop him. They can't even slow him down. And he explains what's going on. Why would he do this knowing that in every city the Holy Spirit has said you're going to be arrested, you're going to be beaten, it's it's going to be bad for you. Why would he do it? He says, for I am ready, not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. All of Paul's missionary journeys, hasn't he run into opposition from the Jews? He would go into a synagogue, he would preach, look, I'm here to tell you who the Messiah is. I can prove it because he rose from the dead, and he wound up getting kicked out. They even took him as far as Lystra and stoned him. So he's met Jewish opposition at every turn. So for him to go to Jerusalem is nothing new. It's not like, oh, wait, you mean the Jews won't like this? This has been his, his traveling experience the whole time. Why would the man do it? Why would somebody do this? He says, because he's been called to this mission. I will even die for the name of the Lord Jesus. I, I, that's the kind of opposition I w- I'm willing to face. This is as far as I'm going to go, is I will even face that. Paul's desire was not to wash his hands of the Jews and go, you're on your own now. Remember last week I cited Romans 9, 1 through 5, where Paul says, I myself would be accursed if I could be to save my brothers. I mean, that's how deeply, how much he cared for the Jewish people. He would be willing to be damned to hell if it would save them. And so, if that's the standard he's willing to go, is being killed by them in Jerusalem a hindrance? Is it going to slow him down? I, I will go that far. If I will go as far as hell, I can certainly go as far as death. That's his passion. That's his love for his people. And he's not willing to give it up. He wants to go. So then the last section is, he arrives in Jerusalem. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. There's the up. Actually, they went down. If you look at the map, they went down. They didn't go up. The Bible says up. They went up. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought us to the house of Manassan of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we lodged. Manassan of Cyprus. Cyprus has come up repeatedly in this, hasn't it? Do you remember where Cyprus is? Tripoli northern Africa. These Cy- Cyprians get around, Are not Cyprus. Yeah, Cyprus. Uh, that's that little island. Never mind. Rats. I was all excited. Still, the Cyprians get around, too. They, they show up. Um, they, they were in, um, you remember, they were in Antioch when Paul was there, they, they brought the message. It was um, people from Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyrene's Tripoli, not Cyprus. They've been early disciples. They've been involved from early on. And so this Manassan, who we've never met before and won't hear from again, an early disciple houses him. Now think about that for a moment. What was Paul's reception in Jerusalem last time? He showed up and the Jews got mad at him. And he had to kind of sneak out. The church didn't want to receive him. <coughs> Because he was persecuting the church. He, they were terrified of him. But this guy, he showed, Paul shows up with some people from Caesarea and they go, Yeah, you can stay with us. They're risking their lives in doing this. But isn't that a wonderful thing that, that Christians can do that? Christians can find community. You can go to another church and you don't feel like an alien on a foreign planet. Yeah, you could, oh, yeah, exactly. Ramey's right. Go to another country and go to a worship service. And you haven't a clue what they're saying, but you can feel it and you can feel at home and everybody is glad you're there. That's the beauty of being part of the church is there's something beyond just a social club or a hobby that knits us together. There's something large, something huge, something eternal that draws us together and it's a beautiful thing. So what's the point of all of this? Well, put up the next slide please. Um, Remember our graphic for the sermon series There we go. Zion or Antioch? And you remember we talked about that choice earlier? Zion was the the hill where David, when he took over Jerusalem, he established what he called the city of David. And so with David in mind and Zion, this hill, the way the scriptures the rest of the time talk about Zion is it's this idealized, beautiful place where God's people are going to wind up. It is this, this dreamed about kingdom that we've been longing for. And so in the New Testament, it talks about Zion as this holy hill, the new Jerusalem. What Zion represents to us is the eternal state. We are dwelling with God. There's no temple because God dwells in the midst of us. He's just with us. It is sin and death and hell are done away with. We are set free. And we can worship in honesty and in truth, being who we were meant to be picture of Zion is that eternal state. It's a beautiful thing. That's often described as the church at rest. She has run her course. She has done what she's been called to do, and now she rests. But in the book of Acts, I think Antioch represents something different. What happens at Antioch? Paul and Barnabas are commissioned. Paul and Silas travel out. And what awaits them on their journey? Victory and opposition. The Jews and the Gentiles both go after Paul and try to kill him. They want to arrest him. They, throw him, they drag him into a marketplace and, and argue. They drag him into a temple and argue, or not a temple, uh, um, uh, um, a theater. And, and there's this opposition. But in the midst of that, there's all these churches that are started. And that picture is more the picture, I think, of the church. Militant, and I don't mean militant as in we're going to go you know, storm City Hall and, and take it over until everybody confesses Christ. It means church on the mission that Jesus has given them. So the question here, when we look at what Paul's moment here is, I think this is really Paul's big Antioch or Zion moment. Will he retreat from the opposition that faces him and just dwell with the, the sweet communion with the believers in Caesarea? go back to Tyre and spend some time with them, or will he press on to the next journey, the next, event, the next uh, event that he's got to face? And so how do you make this decision? How do you decide when you're faced with these two choices, with these, these two huge things that face you, how do you decide, I'm going to go do this? Well, that's what I want to kind of look at, is how did Paul decide he was going go to go uh, to Jerusalem before Pentecost? We don't know. Luke didn't tell us. It would have been nice. You know, he had a vision in the night, and Jesus said. um, He had heard that there was something special going on this particular Pentecost, and he was going to be there for it so that he could share. We don't know. We just don't have a clue. Um, So what I want to do is kind of look over Paul's journey so far and say, what would lead this man to make a decision like this? How would he decide that he's going to go there? And so I wrote down about five things that I think contribute to who Paul is that he would do this. The first is, and this is important for us, because any of you face hard decisions sometimes? Nah, life's really cushy, right? We're in Zion, yay. Um, No, we're we're still working through Antioch, we're still on mission. So we're going to face difficult decisions. So this is really helpful for us, I think, if we grab this picture of how Paul may have made this decision, what affected the way the man thought that he would make this kind of decision. So the five things I picked up were humility. Humility is where it's got to start. And you remember my definition of of humility is not never giving offense to anyone. Did Paul ever give (coughs) offense to anyone? Good heavens, yes. Then he got arrested and thrown in jail and, and beaten and all that. But he was humble. Why was he humble? How was he humble? He was humble because what Paul did was he saw himself as God sees him. He accepted who he was in light of who God is. That's what true humility is. And so I get that because in verse 24, he says, I do not account my life of any value or precious to me. The most important thing is not my life and what I want with it. The most important thing here is God and what God wants and who God is. And so you remember from last week, I mentioned humility last week too. Um, In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, but because I persecuted the church. Because I persecuted the church. He doesn't say, well, you know, that was a thing. It was a phase. He he owns that. He still feels the, the weight of it in his heart, the burden of what he did to the church. And because of that, he says, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. I was horrible. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all of them. So Paul is looking at himself honestly. He's not trying to, trying to make it sound good. He's not lying to himself. He's saying, I am the worst of sinners. I persecuted the church. I tried to kill them. I tried to arrest them. I tried to eradicate them. But God has shown his grace on me. And so because of him, I am who I am. That right there is, I think, a perfect picture of true humility is acknowledging I am a wretched sinner. Given a chance, I will do horrible things. And yet, God has shown his love on me. He's put his His grace on me. He loves me anyway. And because of that, then I can walk in grace and I can accept who I am, the ugly and the good, the right and the wrong, the good and the bad. I can accept all of that because the, the one that really matters is what God thinks of me. So humility is the first place that Paul's goes. I think that's, that's clear from when he says, I don't account my life as anything. I'll spend it if I need to. The next thing that I think is important when making tough decisions is prayer. Paul, 20, in, in uh, chapter 20, verse 6, uh, not 20, 21, verse 6, uh, Paul prays on the beach with them at Tyre. Tyre, by the way, is, is famous for this beach with this really soft sand. So, it's not like they were kneeling down on stones. When Lisa and I were in England, we would go to this town, little town called Alborough, and it had this pebble beach. And when the waves came in, you heard these pebbles just knocking against each other. And I thought kneeling on that would be tough. But this was a nice, soft sand beach. So, you know, he doesn't do anything hard. Um, but he prayed. He knelt down and he prayed with, with the, the disciples that he'd met there. And now, read through the rest of the New Testament. Does Paul ever pray? Doesn't he begin every epistle, I pray all, I I remember you always in my prayers. The man was a praying machine. He prayed constantly. He was always praying. So if Paul is going to make this decision, first of all, he has to see himself as humble. He has to see himself in light of who God is and who he is. And then second of all, he's got to be bathing this in prayer. He's got to pray regularly. And that's what he does. He prays and he prays and he prays. So prayer, by the way, is not wishful thinking. Sometimes people treat it as if, you know, well, yeah, that's nice. You do prayers. Anything else? Prayer is not just wishful thinking. The universe, when people, you know, talk about, I speak this into the universe. The universe, by the way, is largely empty, very cold, and it could care less about you. It can't even hear you. So you can wish stuff into the universe. It amounts to zero. When we pray, we are not uttering into a void. We are calling on the true and the living God, the power behind all of creation, the one who made it. It says that Jesus sustains the universe by the word of his power. Why do molecules, why why do atoms stay together? Why do quarks remain where they are? Why do, uh, whether it's heavy and there's uh, light forces and there's, it's because God said stay together. And just by the exertion of his will, he says, now stay together. And so those atoms keep circling and the protons and the nuclei and all that other stuff just keeps doing what it's going to do. That's the power you're calling on when you pray. Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, help me find the right way. Do you think he knows? He can see Jesus has gotten you access to that kind of power. It's huge. So pray. The next one I think is really important to Paul is is he remembers God's promises. Now, Paul has a benefit. He had a specific promise uttered directly to him right after he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and he was blinded, um, Ananias came to him and prophesied and told him what, God, what Jesus had told him. So in, in chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Paul had this promise that he will suffer, that that was part of his calling and his ministry, but that he would take Jesus' name before the Gentiles, the kings, and the children of Israel. And isn't that what he said? I'm willing to, to even die for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul is clearly operating on the promise that was given to him, but there were other promises, too, that he could hang on to. As a matter of fact, one night in Corinth, the Lord came to him in a vision and said, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people who are mine in this city. So Paul had this great promise that Jesus came personally and gave to him. And so do you think when he was in Corinth he was brave and he was sure? And he would say, well, you know, I, I have to decide where do I go, who do I talk to, what do I say, at what time, when do I bring it up? But the Lord is with me. And I can come into Corinth and I can boldly proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ because he has many people in this city. There are many of his that need to hear this message. He's operating on faith, hanging on to that promise that God had given him, that Jesus had uttered to him. And then very if I'm sure you heard this story very far back, very at the very beginning of Acts, before Jesus ascended, do you remember what he told his apostles? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He would be with them. The power of the Holy Spirit would be on him. Paul goes into these situations announcing these things, saying, I know that the Holy Spirit is with me. Jesus promised that. So when you have a tough decision to make, when you have something that you have to figure out, be humble, recognize this isn't all about you, It's pray, really pray. You know, we pray, Lord, I need a parking spot. And, you know, he might answer that. But really pray. Spend some time seeking him out and praying. And then remember some promises. He has made us great and wonderful promises. And through Jesus Christ, they're all yes and amen to us. So, for example... Romans 8, chapter 1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's a promise you can grab onto and hang onto. You can say, Lord, I I messed up royally today. I really did a bad thing. But there is now no condemnation for me. Because I'm in you. I've been set free from that law of sin and death. I don't have to go back to that vomit and do that again. I can come after you. I have a promise that I can hold on to. So as you're reading through the Bible this year, look for those promises. You might write them down and make a bookmark out of them or something, but you'll need those. Those are important, not only to fight sin, but also to make tough decisions, to decide what comes next. The next thing that he asked for is he he asked for advice. He heard advice. Um, in chapter 19, verse 31, in Ephesus, he was going to charge into the theater. Remember that? There's a big riot, great is Artemis of Ephesians, and Paul is getting ready to head in, and the Asiarchs and some of his other friends grab and say, please don't go in there. You're only going to make it worse. And he, he did what they said. He heard their advice, and he said, okay, I won't go in. So he, he was not, like, above anybody else's advice. He wasn't, I am super apostle, and I will do whatever. He heard their advice, and he said, okay, I won't go. When Paul left Philippi in chapter 17, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So when it was time to leave Philippi, the brothers say, Paul, hit the road. And Paul goes. Now when we get to this point, the brothers are saying, please don't go. And he's he's saying, I hear you, and I'm weighing this in light of everything that I've experienced so far, and I'm going to go. So when it comes to advice... You hear the advice, you listen to the advice, you consider who's giving the advice, and you decide at that moment, should I follow it or should I not? It's advice, it's not law. That's like I was talking about wisdom. God promises in James, if you, anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask God without doubting and he will give it. What is wisdom? Is wisdom the right answer to do the right thing at this time? No, that's, that's an answer. Wisdom is the ability to, make, to weigh these things and make a decision. So that's where advice comes in. Paul seeks the advice of others. What do you think? Don't go. I've got to go. So thank you for your advice, but I'm not going to accept it. And then um, I, I talked with Jeff Brandon, um, the pastor of Revive AV. He, he left Revive AV. They're, they're still going, but um, he, he decided that it was time to depart. And I said, Jeff, does this list sound good to you? And he said, yeah, I'd add one more thing. He said, what's that? And he said, try other routes. So with Revive, he tried to not leave. But it just became apparent that that leaving was the right thing. So, does Paul try other routes? I mean, ultimately, you got to do something, right? So, did had Paul have any experience with trying different routes and being told no? Well, yeah. In chapter sixteen, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So, Paul is going. Well, we're here. Let's let's go this way. And the Holy Spirit goes, nope, that way. Okay. So eventually, you got to do something. God promises he will direct your steps, but if you're not taking any steps, there's nothing to direct. So since we believe in the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, the strength of God, the purpose of God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you can go out and mess up. Make mistakes. Try something. Make a wise choice and head in that direction, and trust, because of the promises of the Lord, that he'll direct your ways. That he'll do it. So you gotta, eventually, you've got to get to that point where you're going to try something. So this, like I said, was Paul's Zion or Antioch moment, and he's made up his mind, and where we leave him is he's landed in Jerusalem. So I want to ask you, which, which reality are you living in light of right now, Antioch or Zion? We have Zion, and we can hold on to that. That's been pictured for us. That's been promised. We're going to get there. But what's between us now and, and then? So we have a road to travel. We have a journey to take. We have steps that we have to follow. Will you go that way? Will, will you follow that? I think John Newton, in his hymn, Gone on Belief, kind of summed this up really nice. In one of the verses, he says, Though dark be my way, since he is my guide, tis mine to obey, tis his to provide. Though cisterns be broken and creatures all fail, the word he has spoken will surely prevail. Do you hear what he's saying? Cisterns were holes in the ground where you put water. The, they break, your water leaks out, you're going to die. Cisterns are not trustworthy. Creatures all fail. By the way, we're creatures. So advice, not advice. Circumstances this way, circumstances that way. The word he had spoken will surely prevail. Hang on to that promise. I love the way Newton said that. There's, I wanted to read the whole song, but we'll just stick with that one. So here's the idea. Here's a thought. When the materialist somebody who believes in only the material, only what this is, that's all you are, when the materialist looks at this stuff, they say, you know what, this life is all you got. When, when you die, you blink out of existence, your body turns into nothing, and you're gone. And so that's the way the materialist is going to look at the world, is this is it. Well, you better spend this life carefully. At, at their best, they would say, you should only... Put your life on the line where you're going to die for somebody if there's a huge return, if it's going to have significant return. Otherwise, you know, spend it for maximum benefit. And then their mantra is, do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Because this is all you got. You might as well enjoy yourself, right? So if whatever it is doesn't hurt anybody else, you know, indulge. We're not materialists, though. We're what Carl F.H. Henry called supernaturalists. There's nature and then there's supernature. There's a nature above nature. And so what we say is there is a life to come that lasts forever. What we do in this life has eternal consequences, not just 80 years, 90 years, 100 years. What we do in this life has eternal consequences. So we're called, because we have this hope afterwards, we could spend our lives for others because we know that the lasting benefits would be not just to us, oh, you know, I did a good deed, therefore I get to go to heaven. But we would spend ourselves in in this life because we could say, I can be a blessing to all these other people. It's not based on my good deeds. It's based on Jesus. And so that we don't have that, get the most out of it now, because, boy, it's gone when it's gone. The best awaits us. This is great, but the best is yet to come. And so Jesus' command is not do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Jesus' command is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You know the good that they need to have done. So these little things that Paul is doing and experiencing, these, these moments that he's going through, have eternal consequences. His appearance in Jerusalem, we don't hear of anybody getting saved, but somebody may have watched Paul and went, Wow, this Jesus must be real. Maybe I should look into this. We just don't know. And you may never know the exact consequences of it, but those small little things, and by the way, you don't have to be Paul. Aren't you relieved? I'm not telling you to sail to Cyprus or Tyre today. You don't have to be Paul. The little things that we do all count. Remember, he found disciples in Tyre. He didn't make them there. Somebody else did the work. So the only this is a dorky example, and I'm sorry, but this is the best I could come up with. While I was in the Air Force, I worked on F-16 avionics. Very elaborate, very expensive huge electronics that went into this fourth generation, cutting edge at the time fighter aircraft. The smallest thing on that aircraft that we fixed was something called the AOA indexer, a little display that fastened on the side of the heads up display. And it just had three little light bulbs. That's all it did. And the light bulb shown through this thing that either pointed down or a green air circle or a little thing that pointed up. And it told you a number of different things depending on what was going on. It, it would display different information. But all it was was three light bulbs, a little lens and this long cable with a connector at the end. I think the, ex- the exchange value on it was like maybe two or $300, something like that. Minor. I could have just thrown them all out. We didn't have to fix them, but we always worked on them. We always tried to get them working. For a couple hundred bucks, is it worth your time? Well, I think that had an effect. It fit into the system because that was a couple hundred bucks that the Air Force didn't have to spend to buy another one. And every dollar we spent on the F-16 went into how much it cost per hour to fly those things. And the more it cost to fly them, the more we had to charge our customers. And the more we charged our customers, the less money they had for doing other things in their programs. So this little AOA indexer may have been a couple hundred bucks, but I kind of hope that it saves some money on our cost per flying hour so that we could do things like chase the B-2, chase the F-22, and burnout engines, chase the F-35. Chase, who knows what else was going on out there. So that one little AOE index, or just you know, soldering a wire back on, it, was, it seemed minor and insignificant. It's you know, no big deal. It had implications further down the road. That's what's happening here. When you pray for somebody, you never go on a mission trip. When you pray for Bob Burris when he goes to Tanzania, when you pray for Daniel Holmquist when he goes wherever Daniel Holmquist was going this month, because he goes everywhere, You think, oh, I'm not doing much. This is part of this big vision. This is part of this big thing that God is doing. And your little soldering job in praying has huge implications that you can't understand at this moment. So when we look at these things and we see Paul doing these amazing and huge things, we're invited in. We're invited to come along with him and and follow him in this journey. And we're asked, Paul told us, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So he's showing us these are the things that go on in my life regularly, and these are what's helping me make decisions. So next time you face a really huge decision, how are you going to approach it? Are you going to take the materialist approach? What's the shortcut here? The, the fastest answer, the thing that'll maximize most benefit to me? Or will you ask the bigger question what else is going on here? This eye towards eternity, this this, this idea that there's more here. Maybe I should pray. Maybe I should look at what God's doing in this world. Maybe I should understand what God wants in this situation. Maybe I should seek some advice from from wise friends. And then maybe I should just try something. I don't know. So that's, I think, this picture of Paul's journey, it it can seem very far and aloof from us, unattainable. We will never be the Apostle Paul. I can can confidently tell you right now, you are not going to be the Apostle Paul. There was only one. But you are who Jesus has made you to be. By the grace of God, I am who I am. And so follow after our apostle. Watch where he goes. Follow in his footsteps. Notice he left churches behind. They didn't then take off and go around the world. They stayed where they were. They did what they did. So not everybody is called to be an apostle. What are you called to be? What are you called to do now? What what is it that you will do in light of eternity? realizing that there's more than just this life. There's a life to come. There is more than just the thought process of what am I going to do. There is the Holy Spirit. There is a God who oversees it all. What are you going to do? Well, I think Paul has laid a pretty good example for us. So in this difficult decision that he had to make, do I go to Jerusalem or not? Don't for a minute think it was, you know, steely-eyed Joe. He just, yes, I'm going to Jerusalem and nothing can dissuade me. What are you doing breaking my heart? He was moved. He was, I think at that point he was probably on the edge of saying Zion, baby. But in light of everything that had happened, all of his promises, all the things that happened, he went to Jerusalem, and that's where we left him. So next week Daniel will be here, and then the week after we'll pick up with what happens in Jerusalem next. So let's close in prayer. Lord, you've promised wisdom to those who ask, and so I want to ask on my behalf, because I know I really need it, but all of us too, Lord, would you grant us all wisdom? And I think that wisdom is rooted in faith. It is rooted definitely in in humility, because, Lord, your word says in a number of places, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so, Lord, we seek that kind of wisdom, that kind of grace that you would uh, uh, put on us. And, Lord, help us with tough decisions give us clarity. It won't always be right, but Lord, we, we know that you are the one who directs our steps, that you will guide us and that you will correct. And so Lord, we're not Paul, we're not the Apostle Paul, but who we are in the place that you've made us to be, would you call us to be courageous and to trust in you? Thank you for your great and precious promises. In Christ's name, amen.